Hi, I'm Vashi Kapelos and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, October 22nd. This week, we'll take a look at the controversy surrounding Finance Minister Bill Morneau and his personal assets. Then, NAFTA off the rails. Will a cooling off period before round five reset the course and save the deal? A former ambassador weighs in. Plus, we'll unpack the politics of Bill Morneau's week under the microscope. But first, late last week, Bill Morneau finally announced he would put his assets in a blind trust and divest the million shares he owns in his former firm, all to try and quell charges of a conflict of interest as finance minister. This comes on the heels of the government walking back some of their proposed tax changes for small business owners. So what exactly did the finance minister say, and will it be enough for his critics? Take a listen. This week, we've been talking about uh, my personal finances, perhaps naively, thought that, you know, in Canada, following the rules and respecting the recommendations of the Ethics Commissioner, respecting the recommendations of an Officer of Parliament, would be what Canadians would expect. He hid from Canadians his millions of dollars in Morneau Chappelle shares in a numbered company in Alberta, despite wrongly telling others it was in a blind trust, until they got caught, and now he's selling them. We reached out again this week, the third time in this past month, for an interview with the finance minister, and we were told he's not available. So joining me now on his behalf is Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Finance, Joel Lightbound. Mr. Lightbound, great to have you back on the program. Good to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Why did it take the finance minister two years to put his assets in a blind trust and divest his shares in Morneau Chappelle? I I think it's important to to remember that from from the get-go, right after his election, the Minister of Finance has met with the Ethics Commissioner. And uh, yesterday, a letter that the Ethics Commissioner wrote to the minister was released in which he clearly states that he that the way his assets are set up respects the law and what she recommended was to set up a conflict of interest wall to make sure that that as to avoid any perception uh, of conflict of interest which has been done and has been public this conflict of interest wall from the very beginning now what the minister has announced uh, yesterday is that uh, to avoid any distraction on the work that he's been doing for the last two years and on the work that remains to be done for the Canadian economy and for the middle class, as he's done since the election, he would put all of his assets in a blind trust. He would divest himself of all shares him or his family own in Morneau-Chapelle. And, uh, and that, that's going even above and beyond what the ethics commissioner has recommended, which uh, was this uh, conflict of interest wall, which was put in place. And at all times, the, the minister has respected and uh, followed through with the recommendations of the ethics commissioner who's safeguarding the integrity of Parliament and in whom we have the utmost trust uh, as far as her recommendations and the path that she sets for for us as parliamentarians, parliamentary secretaries, ministers. Did he not, though, mislead Canadians two years ago when he first was elected and said that he would expect his assets to be placed in a blind trust? There was never any communication in the meantime that that had not been done. Well, I think that the the way the process works is for, for all MPs to first meet with the ethics commissioner, work with her office and her staff to make sure that based on any given MP situation or minister situation, she sets the course to follow. And uh, one of the the, 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 recommenda- the recommendation that she put forward was this conflict of interest wall, which uh, she said would, would be a measure sufficient to, uh, to make sure that there are no conflict of interest or appearance of conflict of interest. That's what the minister has done. He's always followed her recommendations and acted in conformity and compliance uh, with the, the rules that govern us as MPs and as parliamentarians, but now he's he said uh, all of his assets will be put in the blind trust. He'll divest himself of all shares in Morneau Chappelle to continue building the the economy, just like he he's done in the last two years. And on that on that note, I, I find it a bit. Um, 
sometimes uh, unfortunate that this has caused such a distraction. When you think back two years ago, the Canadian economy was, we were debating whether we were in or heading into a recession. Now we've got the fastest growth in the G7. We've got a reduction in inequalities, and that's the direct work of this finance minister who steered the Canadian economy back into the right direction. He also, though, proposed tax policy changes, which made a lot of Canadians feel targeted. And that's why the spotlight went back on him and his own practices. So do you understand, I guess, why following the rules, the argument that he was following the rules, wasn't palatable to Canadians, wasn't enough for Canadians? Do you well, understand and agree with what their assessment I, I, was? I, uh, I hear uh, and I, I understand uh, in a way, but I think the, 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 the when you get elected, when you enter Parliament, uh, the expectation of you is to be always in full compliance with what the Ethics Commissioner recommends to you. And that's what the Minister has done. And now he's going above and beyond precisely but to move on But I think that's what the Prime Minister direction. instructed in his mandate letter to the, to the Finance Minister as well. He said, observe the highest ethical standards in everything you do. So uh, if Canadians I, uh, are demanding I, more, then isn't it understandable? I, I have the, and that's exactly what the minister's done yesterday when he's announced that he will divest himself of all shares, that he'll pay, place his assets in a blind trust, and, and that he'll keep working just like he's always done to follow the recommendations of the ethics commissioner and make sure that he's in compliance with the laws, with the rules. And I have the utmost confidence that the ministers who, who left the private sector to serve the public to great sacrifice and who's done so with remarkable results for the Canadian economy, for most of your viewers who've got the uh, reduction in their income taxes, who the minister who's helped nine out of ten families with $2,300 more tax-free uh, every year with the Canada Child Benefit. So I think, and, and when you look at the performance of this economy, this minister has been delivering for Canadians, for small businesses, for, for Canadians from all walks of life. Do you think he made a mistake waiting until now to do it? Um, I, I think the, the, the when you get elected, that's as I've mentioned, uh, the expectation of you, and I think uh, of you as a parliamentarian, is to work with the ethics commissioner. That's what he's always done. And I think the as an institution, the ethics commissioner uh, sets the path that we must follow, and uh, the minister has always followed that path. And now it's going further. The ethics commissioner actually in 2013 testified that those conflict of interest rules and laws, which you refer to, are weak and should be strengthened. Do you agree? I think it might be a discussion, uh, and, and I value the Ethics Commissioner's uh, point of view uh, highly. So uh, if she says it, uh, I think that it's worth uh, hearing what she has to say, for sure. Do you think you would urge your government to take a closer look at these rules, given the reaction you've seen over the past few weeks? I, I think I think the Ethics Commissioner uh, and the, the laws that she has, but also the, the, the recommendations she can put forward, has already the tools to make sure that the integrity of Parliament is, is preserved and maintained. Now, if there are things that could be uh, ameliorated. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a word in English, but can be uh, made better. Uh, I think we have to listen to the ethics commissioner for sure. And finally, how calm, before we go and ask, how confident are you that the minister didn't make any decisions while he held the shares in Morneau Chapelle that would positively affect the price of those? And I'm speaking specifically about Bill C-27, which was introduced and the share prices rose by 5% the next day. Well, Bill C-27 has not been adopted by Parliament. It's only passed first reading. It's public. It's out there. So I don't see uh, any conspiracy there. And the other thing to mention is that the Ethics Commissioner, when she recommended setting up this conflict of interest wall, which is public, which makes it so that any dealings with Morneau Chappelle would not come on the minister's uh, desk, uh, is is what she recommended. It, it's what she's, as she's mentioned, would preserve the integrity and the confidence that Canadians can have in our ministers, in our parliamentarians. That's 
the process which is recommended and this is still in place this will still be in place and now the minister is going even further to avoid the distraction and the noise that this has created and to keep working for Canadians and to build our economy certainly a lot of noise created thanks for your time Mr. Lightbound thank, thank you very much but what we can't have is the same old politics of division that we have seen so many times before the dates back centuries We've seen nationalism distorted into nativism. We've forgotten the dynamism that immigration has always brought to America. We see a fading confidence in the value of free markets and international trade, forgetting that conflict, instability, and poverty follow in the wake of protectionism. Those are former U.S. Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush speaking in separate appearances Thursday. They voiced their concerns about the current state of U.S. politics. Their comments are seen as veiled criticisms of President Donald Trump's leadership. A sour addition for the administration's already controversial week after the fourth round of NAFTA negotiations left more questions than answers. Joining us today is former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Gordon Giffen. Mr. Giffen, thanks very much for your time today. Good to be with you. Ambassador, I wanted to get your take on those comments. What do you make of them, and have you ever seen anything like that before? Well, uh, in President Obama's case, he was at a political rally where he was supporting the Democrat running for governor of Virginia. So, yes, I've seen plenty of partisan uh, appearances by former presidents when they're in, uh, trying to support a candidate of their party against uh, a candidate of the other, in this case, uh, Obama supporting a Democrat against a Republican. I think President Bush's remarks were, were more noteworthy in the sense that it's unusual for a former president of the same party as the incumbent to at least imply uh, some criticism of the current White House. Were you surprised to hear it? Um, well, look at it this way. Um, uh, President Trump's been pretty critical of President George W. Bush. So at some point, I would guess that there was a slow burn going on in Texas, uh, and this was a little bit of a response. Something else, of course, President Trump has been uh, critical of is, is NAFTA, and I want to turn to that uh, in the current negotiations. Obviously, the headlines coming out of, of round four were simply, you know, NAFTA is unraveling. Do you agree with that assessment? No, I don't. Uh, I think we're in the middle of a, a pretty dynamic negotiation. I think uh, it took some time for the United States to put some of their demands on the table, but they they went on the table late last week. Um, I think Canada is in some measure uh, responding from a negotiating posture. I mean, for example, no one uh, was surprised that the United States asked to, over time, do away with Canada's supply management system. That we've been discussing that for 25 years. I argued about it when I was ambassador. So it's not stunning that that is now on the table. Uh, but the Canadian negotiators responded as if that was a stark new move. So there's a lot of negotiating going on on both sides of the border. So do you think, I mean, uh, what was interesting to us, we did notice a shift in, ch a shift in tone from our Canadian officials in, in that they were describing what the U.S. tabled as totally unacceptable. Do you think that that is, is pure posturing at this point? Well, I won't try and uh, categorize whether, whether it's posturing. It, this is a negotiation. People tend to forget that it was pretty intense in 
1988 when Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement was negotiated, and it was very intense in, in the 92-93 time frame when, when NAFTA was developed. Uh, we barely passed NAFTA through the U.S. Congress. Um, people tend to romanticize prior negotiations just because they uh, have been a long time ago. All trade negotiations are intense because there are winners and losers, there are pluses and minuses, and I expect that this will continue to be intense, but I don't think it will fail. What do you think the sticking points will be as we go forward? <laughs> well, it's uh, when, when each player, and there are three of them obviously, uh, has to back away from some of their intractable positions, and each of the three parties is going to have to do a little bit of that for this to work. I mean, clearly the dispute resolution mechanism is a, is a big issue. Clearly uh, uh, domestic content or NAFTA content is a big issue, particularly as it relates to the automobile industry. Uh, whether or not there's a sunset clause is a big issue. So there are four or five, I think, uh, grade A issues that are going to have to be confronted. And let me just read you something Mr. Lighthizer said at the closing of round four, just to get your take on it. He said, to some extent, NAFTA is an investment agreement, and it's unreasonable to expect that the U.S. will continue to encourage and guarantee U.S. companies to invest in Mexico and Canada, primarily for export to the United States. All parties have to understand this and be reasonable if there is any chance for these negotiation, negotiations I'm sorry, to be successful. What do you read into that? I think he's very much focused on the trade deficit, and he limits his discussion of the trade deficit to goods, doesn't include services when he uh, adds it all up. If you include services, there's a little bit of a different picture there. So I, I read into it that he's negotiating. Um, in, in many cases, there are U.S.-owned um, companies located in Canada who, who are doing exporting back to the United States. I mean, technically that is an export, but in our market, the North American market, this is almost a self-contained market. So referring to some of this as exports and imports is a little bit of a misnomer. There are lots of Canadian-owned companies that are located in my region of the country, the southern United States, that are manufacturing items like auto parts uh, that are going back to Canada. Um, in order to be incorporated in, a, in an automobile. Is that an export from the United States, or is that just the self-contained commerce that we do in North America? And Canadian and Mexican officials have really tried to make the argument that it's inaccurate or, or not wholesome to, to focus on surplus deficit. Uh, do you think that their arguments have been effective and received at all by the American public or lawmakers? I think, uh, I, yes, I think they're effective. I also think they're accurate. Uh, I do think that the efforts are gaining ground uh, on Capitol Hill, which is an important audience. When the Prime Minister was in Washington uh, a week or so ago, he went up to Capitol Hill and met with the uh, Senate, or excuse me, the House Ways and Means Committee. I think that was a very uh, good move. Uh, so yes, I do think uh, I, I do think the arguments that are being made by the Canadian representatives and in some measure by uh, the Mexicans are being heard. It would be an enormous disruption uh, to the economy of North America, which obviously includes the United States, if our trade agreement fell apart. Uh, we, we have to make it work. We have to improve it. 
And, you know, it's got to be accepted, though, that there will be concessions in Canada and in Mexico. It can't just be uh, taking the position that everything the U.S. is asking for is outrageous. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your time, Ambassador. Really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Finance Minister Bill Morneau said the controversy surrounding his personal assets was a real distraction. Well, that might be an understatement. He announced he will divest his shares in his company, Morneau Chappelle, and he will set up a blind trust. So is it enough to reset the channel? Joining me now are two seasoned Parliament Hill journalists, Josh Wingrove of Bloomberg News and our own chief political correspondent, David Aiken. Thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, Josh, does Bill Morneau survive this? I think we'll see in part on Tuesday. He's going to announce his fiscal update. And the Canadian growth trajectory has been that the economy is going gangbusters. And so there's going to be some really good numbers in there. In Ottawa, we love talking about deficit numbers. It's going to be presumably a lot lower than it was projected earlier. So I think they're going to hope that that will change the channel. But I mean, clearly there's been a sort of a snowballing effect, and it's really clouding the outlook for the government's tax agenda. So I think the jury's out as to whether they can sort of get on with this uh, without it really getting at the core and hurting the core message of the Trudeau government, is that which is what they've tried to make it to be, is that they're out for the little guy. And key to that probably is how Morneau himself handles things. Uh, what did your what was your read of of the press conference he gave, where he first announced uh, these that he would put his shares into the uh, divest the shares and then put his assets into personal? Oh, I would uh, say good on him for taking that step. I think that was short of quitting. That was the only option available to him. And to the question of will he survive, I think if he sold all his stake in his company, would he have done that? if there was any doubt in his mind that the prime minister was not going to have his back. So I would say he's going to be sticking around. So good on him for doing that. But I would have preferred, I suppose, to see a little more humility, as in, uh, this is something I should have done two years ago. And yeah, it does look awfully bad. And just to stress how bad it looks, the, the finance minister's monthly salary from the government of Canada for being finance minister is about $21,000 a month. But the dividends that he has been getting every single month that he's been finance minister from a company he regulates, three times that, $65,000 a month. On its own, that is a conflict of interest he should have recognized at the get-go. Someone in his government should have recognized, saying, this is looking a little bad. Um, but he did the right thing finally, but he should have showed a little more humility, would have made things a little easier going but forward. These things are, you know, they are complicated. My, my good friend David knows they're complicated. We all know they're complicated. If he'd put it in a blind trust, he still would have got the dividends anyway. Right. They so, sort of sold, sold the shares. That, that's, the, that's the thing I'm saying you should have done two years ago. Yeah. The blind trust is not really that blind. I think we should recognize that, too. Yeah, his name's on the company. I mean, exactly. <laughs> so, the shares are in there. You're right. He would have known, and he's getting the dividend every month. That's why he, had to, he should have sold the shares on his way in. He sold a million of them. Why didn't he sell all two million? This is the other thing. We don't know what he sold, because the two million shares included deferred shares. These are like a compensation tool. They're not actually shares. And so it could have been that he sold a million. It could have been that he cashed in the equivalent of a million. Big difference. Uh, so we, we actually don't really know the timeline. They're not being fully forthcoming. Do you think the tone? Sorry, I didn't Do you think the tone and humili humility matters? I mean, I I think the message wasn't. I think I should hold myself to a higher standard. It's that well, Canadians were saying this, so I guess I have to do more than the rules. Which, by the way, I followed. I followed. I followed. That's all we heard all week. Even when he was saying, "I'm now going to do more." Well, you you called both of us seasoned off the top of the show. I, uh, that's very kind. David is writing <laughs> more seasoned than I am. Uh, many seasoned and, people in this town will say that the thing that always brings down liberal governments is entitlement 
hubris, mm -hmm. arrogance, getting out of touch. Uh, that is always the Achilles heel. I think any liberal would tell you that's always their Achilles heel, and that's, I think, what can make the fallout of this ripple more beyond. You know, we've seen this year some major controversies that ended up not really being much of a controversy in the House of Commons. Omar Khadr was all we talked about for mm -hmm. a couple months, and we've had maybe, I don't know, very few questions in the right. House of Commons this fall. So, you know, it could find itself in that court category, but if it gets folks who are sort of the swing voters thinking that they uh, are out of touch, that these are the same old liberals, then I think it could be a, a long-term problem for the liberals. And don't forget, in addition to the fiscal update next week, what are some other things that the finance minister has or will be involved with among them? And the you brought this up and you're reporting this week, and it was just brought up on Friday in the House of Commons, is a tax treaty we're negotiating with Barbados. But this is a notorious location for rich people to have tax shelters, and guess who's got one of them? Yes, the finance minister still holds a tax shelter in the Barbados, and we're negotiating a tax treaty with that. Again, optics, that doesn't look so good. He believes that this legislation, C-27, is going to be good for Canadians, do you think there's any hope that this is going to get off the floor? That how can he credibly still bring this back to the House of Commons? That is going to be kind of difficult. And that's why, you know, to the issue of will he survive, say, uh, not survive, but will he move to another portfolio, say, next June or something like that? It may be because on those files, it's still a little too toxic for him. Do you think it hurts the liberal brand, the, the sort of Achilles heel that, that that brand has? Does it add to that? I think so. And I, again, yes, for the season among us, <laughs> this is what happens. And let's remember how the week started off. It started off with a press conference in Stouffville, Ontario, with the prime minister and the finance minister, and with the prime minister taking the extraordinary step of going, no, I got it, uh, blocking out his finance minister <laughs> and taking questions. And the prime minister looked a little annoyed. And it finished, it finished the week with the finance Finance Minister in Waterloo, Ontario, responding to our questions about his numbered companies by essentially saying, I don't have to answer to you, journalists, I answer to the Ethics Commissioner. And that is not the tone that the Prime Minister himself entered office saying, uh, he, he said it would do something different. Mandate letters, we'll be different, we'll respond to journalists and treat them fairly. And here's the Finance Minister saying, I don't got to answer your questions. I think that might need to change. I should also ask about the fiscal update mm -hmm. next week. Uh, the deficit will likely be lower. What else are you anticipating out of that? There have been a lot of sort of pucks that they've been ragging for a while. Last fiscal update, for instance, you talk about things that they've proposed and not done anything with. C-27 hasn't moved at all in a mm -hmm. year in the House. They proposed last uh, uh, some housing measures, which is like boring but really important to min how the, uh, the minister. They could move forward on that, which is shifting some of the risk to big banks if uh, the housing uh, sector went bad. There's little things that they could do there. They could finalize some of their passive income stuff that we've seen them walking back. But I think, I think the, the Liberals have a habit of not clouding the core message they want. They really like to dampen down the side stories. And the core message they want out of this is that the economy is going well and their deficit is better than expected. And do you think that story replaces this one next week? Well, David? here's one of the things I'm looking for. You remember at the end of Stephen Harper's time in office, uh, Governor Polos thought that uh, the economy needs stimulus. So monetary policy, which he uh, controls, was trying to be stimulative at the same time that the Harper government was pulling back spending and it was they were ro rowing in the wrong in, against each other. Right. We kind of have the same thing right now. Governor Polos is raising interest rates, signaling our economy is, is going strong, inflation becomes starts to become an issue, and yet we have a government's fiscal policy which is still highly stimulative. So do we see some signs that we will start to balance budgets, pull some things in? I know there are many blue liberal MPs, small c conservative liberal MPs. That's what they'd really like to see from their government is put a date on when we'll be in back into balance. We still don't have that yet from this government. No, well, lots to watch for Tuesday. Thanks very much for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Vashi Capellas. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, westblock.ca. 
follow us on Facebook and Twitter and tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.